How you going? Hello, church family. How y'all doing? Looking so nice and summery. Look at y'all. Good to see you. So we are continuing in the encounter series. Like Bernie said, who here has enjoyed hearing about these divine encounters? It's been amazing, eh? It's been absolutely amazing. Um, I love how JD, um, what he said, that our, he's our resident theologian. I love what he said about angelic encounters. He said that they are often unexpected and uninvited, although sometimes invited out of desperation, like, help, help me. And that angels come to confront us and comfort us, and that these divine interruptions are always life-changing. So the angelic encounter that we are looking at tonight is one that we usually look at during the Christmas season, which is almost upon us, like Bernie was saying. It is when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. Mary, she used to be my homegirl. <laughs> I grew up Roman Catholic. And when you grow up Roman Catholic, you're looking at 12 years of Catholic school right here. And I survived. Mary is a staple. She's like part of the family. And when I was little, my mom, my siblings, and I, we lived with my grandmother for a period of time. And pictures and statues of Mary were everywhere, everywhere. On the wall, as you entered the house, there were three pictures hanging proudly. Um, there, it was a picture of Jesus, picture of Mary, and a picture of the Pope, the Holy Trinity, right there. <laughs> yes. Now, Mary was someone that I prayed to said my rosary to on a regular basis, because in my young brain, I actually thought this, I wasn't good enough or worthy enough to pray to Jesus directly. So I would pray and ask Mary to talk to Jesus on my behalf and put in a good word for me. Now, as a kid, um, the Catholic primary school that I went to was called St. Anne's, which was named after Mary's mother. Now, every May, not, not just hang with me here because it's going to sound weird, but every May, we celebrated Mary. It was called the Mary Procession. In every prime, it was every primary school girl's, school girl's dream to be in the procession as one of the princesses in Mary's court or to play Mary herself. I was too naughty to play Mary, so that was never going to happen. But the whole school would dress up in their Sunday best all us girls in our white dresses and the boys in shirts and ties. And they would be singing, usually the Ave Maria. And there would be a sort of parade, a procession to the grotto, which was a shrine <laughs> to Mary, to the statue of Mary. Now, every Catholic school has one. And the girl who was chosen to play Mary got to crown the statue of Mary with a garland of roses. Now listen, I know this sounds weird, but this wasn't some backwater small town thing. I grew up in Orange County, California, Disneyland area. Um, the Catholic high school that I went to was called Modern Day, which is Latin for Mother of God. Now currently, Modern Day, my old high school, has the number one high school football team in the whole of the United States. And it has for many years. They're a big deal. They're always on TV. And still today, when the football team wins a major football game, the players head over to the grotto to bestow Mary with a crown of roses. And that's at my high school. Now, why tell you all of that? I just want to give us some context that I realize that in some religions like Roman Catholicism that Mary is really revered, worshipped, and prayed to. Is it weird 
Weirdly extreme? Absolutely. And it's not until I kind of came out of that, because when you're in it, that's all you know. That's all you know. It seems normal to you. I grew up in a Catholic neighborhood, went to Catholic school. I thought everybody was Catholic, seriously, for a long, long time, until at my high school there was a Methodist there, and we were like, who are you? Like, what do you do? You know, it's just like, you know, like, what was that all about? So it's not until looking back and me praying to Jesus directly and opening up the scriptures for myself, you're like, hang on a minute. I don't think Mary ever intended for this to become like a thing. So, yeah, it's, I just want to give us some context that, that it's weird, but this is the time or the place to debate that. But I have found that in the Protestant church that the pendulum has swung really far to the other, to the other side, probably in reaction to the extremism that Mary now doesn't even get a look in. She's hardly ever mentioned. It's almost anti-Mary. And that was kind of my experience when I became a born-again Christian. Um, you just didn't talk about her. But church, here's the thing. There's just something about Mary, <laughs> the mother of Jesus, that's compelling, courageous, humble, and so incredibly brave that I think we can learn from and be inspired by her regardless of what camp you sit in. So on that note, let me pray for us. Lord, my desire is that you and you alone would be glorified tonight. So God, I pray that you would hide my flesh behind the cross and that you would shine. You would shine. God, just be with us tonight. Um, I know I say this every time, but your presence is everything to us. And I never want to be cavalier about it or um, just kind of go about my business now. You're like, you're not here, but you are. And thank you, God. <laughs> it's an awesome reality. So God, tonight, have your way, have your way, have your way in our hearts and in this place. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. But I want to start off by with what Luke says from the very beginning, which I think is really profound. In Luke chapter 1, from the very first verse, he says this. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, who were first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And he's talking about the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So off the bat, Luke is telling us that he has investigated these events, these historical events for himself, investigated and interviewed people who were still alive and eyewitnesses to um, the events, and Luke gives us details about Mary that are not found in the other three Gospels. So Luke must have sat down with her to interview Mary. Imagine that, Mary advanced in years, telling her side of the story to Luke. And Luke says in verse 26, he says this. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin name 
was Mary. Okay, let's get some context. Luke says that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, now in the previous verses, the angel Gabriel has appeared to Mary, Mary's relatives, an old righteous man called um, Zechariah, who was married to Elizabeth. Now they were old, childless, and well past childbearing years. And the angel tells Zechariah that God has heard their prayers and that Elizabeth will have a son who we know will be John the Baptist. Now, Zechariah doesn't believe the angel Gabriel. Hello, we're very old, Gabriel. So Gabriel tells Zechariah, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, I am Gabriel. <laughs> I stand in the presence of God. And you know what, old man? You just need to be quiet for a while and watch God work. So Zechariah is temporarily made mute until this promise is fulfilled. And Zechariah is then miraculously endowed with some supernatural Viagra, and Elizabeth gets pregnant. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, yeah. There's so much more that I know I should. Can we edit that? Can we edit that out? Oh, we're live. Oh, no. Okay. Oh. It was funny at the time, but now it's not so much. Okay. Now, there's much more to that story. Yes, and you can go back and read it for yourself, but that's it in a nutshell. I will never paraphrase again. I'm telling you right now. So, Gabriel, focus, he's right there. You see the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah and then six months later appearing to Mary is huge. It's life altering. It's world changingly huge. You see for 400 years and actually it's like more like 700 years, God seemingly had not done anything for the nation of Israel. For the Jews, God had been inactive and silent. And the nation of Israel during these centuries had changed hands like 25 times. The Babylonians had taken them over. The Syrians had taken them over. The Greeks and the Persians had taken them over. Many of the Jews had abandoned, Jews had abandoned their faith and assimilated into the current culture. And yet... Even when it looks like God was not working and had abandoned his people, there is this remnant of devoted and faithful followers like Zechariah and Elizabeth who lived every day like Christmas is coming, like the Messiah was coming. And I think that's incredible. So God sends Gabriel to Nazareth, a poor working class village that was considered to be the armpit of the region. Even Nathaniel in John's gospel says, when he hears about Jesus, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a nothing kind of place, but God chooses and uses, we know this, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And it is here that Gabriel appears to a young peasant girl called Mary. Now Mary was most likely to have been between the ages of 12 to 15. And in those days when a girl hit puberty, she was of marrying age. She was engaged to a guy called Joseph and being engaged and betrothed to someone um, wasn't like it is today. It was technically by being married, but without the physical intimacy part or even the social contact part, they had very little social contact. And the only way you could break an engagement was to officially divorce. So it was possible to be a virgin and divorced. 
<clears throat> now, the betrothal period lasted for about a year with a simple ceremony in anticipation of the official wedding ceremony. And during the betrothal period, the groom would go and prepare a place for his bride. And after a year, he would go and get her, but the bride never knew when he was coming, so she always had to be ready. So wedding preparations were probably foremost in Mary's teenage mind. But who here knows <laughs> that God can interrupt your plans, flip the script, and change the course of your life? Honestly, I know that's happened to me, and I thank God every day that he interrupted me and my plans, like seriously. So it says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. You see, Mary was totally freaked out because one, an angel ha has appeared to her and she's alone. And two, she's freaked out by the angel's words. Perhaps it's because she has never had anybody talk to her that way. I remember writing on a birthday card um, to someone I worked with about how much I appreciated them. And when they opened it and started reading it, they stopped after the first line, turned the card over and said, who's this? Who's talking to me this way? And I smiled and I said, hasn't anybody ever talked to you that way? And they were dead serious. They said, no, never. It was just a few encouraging and kind words, but she had never heard that from someone. And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten how powerful a kind and encouraging word can be. And I, I wonder if Mary was wondering, who me? Highly favored? I don't think so. I am nobody special. But God had looked over the earth and he's chosen you, Mary. You have found favor with God. And that word favor literally means grace. And grace is undeserved favor or unmerited love. Now the word described, that word describes in essence that we are saved, loved, and embraced by God through no merit of our own. Mary was saved by grace. She was not a giver or dispenser of grace. She was saved by grace. The same is true for you and I and for those who put their belief and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We are recipients of God's grace and his favor is upon us. This is so mind-blowing to me. Church, can we wrap our minds and our hearts around the fact that we, like Mary, are under the gaze and have the attention and favor of God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. What a frighteningly awesome reality. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Notice how Gabriel has to tell Mary not to be scared. <laughs> we have been learning in this series that angels aren't just some chubby babies floating around somewhere. Angels are majestic figures. And in Angel School 101, the first thing an angel learns is to tell the humans that they're talking to, do not be afraid. And Gabriel tells Mary, do not be afraid. And again, he tells her she's found favor with God. And by the way, Mary, you will conceive and give birth to Messiah. 
and you will call him Jesus. Do you realize that this is the first proclamation of his personal name since the beginning of time? Jesus. The very name at which every knee will one day bow, the very name that every tongue will one day confess, a name that has no parallel in my vocabulary or yours. What a wonderful name it is, Jesus. And Mary responds, <laughs> how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And some translation says, for nothing is impossible with God. That, that's a word for someone here tonight. That really is. You came to hear that. This is so incredibly profound, church, on so many levels. And can I just talk to the girls in the house for a minute? Where are my girls at? Lean in. Lean in. I'm talking to you. Do you realize, girls, at the great moment of the incarnation, that God's Son, part of the Trinity, comes from heaven to earth, puts on human flesh, and he makes himself so small, the size of a single cell. And God chooses someone young, female, and poor, utterly unimportant in society, to be the first to whom he reveals his plan. Not only is Mary entrusted with the promised child, but she alone for now holds a unique testimony of his identity. He's the Messiah. And might I add, girls, that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women in a day and an age where women's testimony meant almost nothing. But even more remarkable is that both the beginning and the end of Jesus' life and ministry and resurrection were witnessed by women. Were witnessed by women. Can I get an amen from the girls in the house? That's amazing. That's incredible. But Mary's encounter with the angel gets even more shocking. In order to do this incredible thing that God has promised, Gabriel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now listen, the language used here refers to the Shekinah glory of God, which is the physical manifestation of his glory. Gabriel tells her that this Shekinah glory that which dwelled in the temple's innermost private holiest part would literally descend into her innermost private unclean parts. In the temple, only the high priest was allowed to, allowed into the presence of the glory of God and only once a year. And certainly no woman was allowed in the holiest of holies. And yet here God said that his glory would descend upon and into and through an utterly unimportant teenage girl. And in my opinion, one of the most profound verses in the whole of the Bible is how Mary responds to what Gabriel has said to her. And she says this. And Mary said, behold, <laughs> I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me, or may it be to me according to your word. 
And then the angel departed from her. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What stunning courage. She bends the knee knowing what saying yes to God could mean for her. We need to remember that Mary's let it be to Gabriel occurred months before her I do to Joseph. And to be a Jewish woman and pregnant before marriage meant that her integrity and her reputation would forever be questioned when people found out and did the math. And not just for her, but for her son too. His legitimacy would forever be in question, and it was. In her Jewish world, she could be stoned to death or be taken to the outskirts of town where she would be stripped naked to be shamed, hurled insults at and spit upon for all to see and to be made a public spectacle of. You see, we don't want to miss this church, what Mary was willing to give up. Mary's let it be in her I do to God means that she does not idolize marriage. She does not idolize her reputation. She does not idolize comfort or security. She bends the knee and foregoes all of it with open hands and lets it be taken from her. She, she surrenders her will to God's will. I'm going to say that again. She surrenders her will to God's will. Doesn't that sound familiar? Sounds just like her son in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus on his knees said to his heavenly father, not my will, but yours be done. Notice too, though, that the second she says yes, angel Gabriel departs from her. And I would have been like, hey, man, where are you going? <laughs> Can you come with me to tell my mother and then tell Joe what you just told me? But no, he leaves. Now, don't you wonder how that conversation went, those conversations went? You can tell sometimes that the book, this document, this historical document, this gospel was written by a man. <laughs> For how detailed Luke has been, the historian, he's just kind of glosses over that bit. But can you just imagine it? Um, Mom, an angel appeared to me and now I'm pregnant with the Messiah. It kind of reminds me of that um, chorus of that Black Crow song, She Talks to Angels where it says, she says she talks to angels and says that they know her by her name. Yeah, right. So Mary does what anybody would do in her situation. She runs for the hills and hightails it out of town to her cousin Elizabeth's house. And I love how the angel Gabriel, I love this. I love that he reveals to Elizabeth, reveals to Mary Elizabeth's pregnancy. I mean, how tender of God to give Mary a friend Someone she can relate to and confide in, who's also had kind of a miraculous kind of birth, a pregnancy. So Mary makes a hundred mile trek to um, trek through the wilderness to the hills of Judea, and it says this. And at that time, Mary got ready and hurried down to the hill country of Judea. I bet she hurried. And when she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord will fulfill his promise to her. God uses Elizabeth to confirm what Mary had experienced. What a relief that must have been for her. Mary had probably been too scared to celebrate or thought that she was going crazy, but Elizabeth's confirmation set her free because look what Mary does next. She breaks out into song. She says this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me, will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he has promised, just as he promised our ancestors. I love that. You know, Mary's song here reflects 12 different Old Testament passages. She has 17 references to the attributes of God. And what would be said of Mary over and over and over that she just didn't hear the word of God? Oops, sorry. Mary treasured these things in her heart. She treasured it and pondered it. That's the kind of girl that Mary was. And I don't know if Mary was illiterate, but what is clear was that she has heard scripture and she has treasured it. She's treasured it. And I have to wonder if Mary were a teenage girl today in our social media driven world, where every action and every thought is posted for the world to see, if Mary would have been like that. Yes, she's an ordinary teenage girl, but there's just something about Mary that is deep, thoughtful, and wise, and that she holds things close to her heart. Mary was obviously aware of the covenant being fulfilled right before her eyes. And it's hard for us to comprehend the mind, the mindset of, an, of the ancient Hebrews, their belief system was not just a religion to them, it was life. God was so much a part of their politics as their religious practices. We can't separate Mary from her culture and to get to know her is to gain insight into the home that Jesus was reared in. This song has definite political overtones. Mary understood about oppression. She was living in a day when Rome occupied her country and King Herod sat on the throne. King Herod, he was a madman. He was so paranoid of losing, um, losing his throne that he had his wife, many of his sons killed, and other people around him killed as well. And Herod was the one that when he hears about the birth of Jesus, had every Jewish male child two years old and under killed, massacred. You know, even in the late 1980s, the government of Guatemala and the government of Nicaragua banned any public reciting of Mary's song, also known as the Magnificat, because it was deemed politically subversive. Lines like, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. That didn't go down well. Even in Mary's day, you could be killed for singing a song like that. But sing, she does. And at the end of Mary's song, Luke says this. Again, he does some mansplaining. He says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. That's it. Say what? Thanks again, Luke. I'm not going to go into the birth of Jesus. As the next two weeks, we were going we're to hear from Bernie and Rob and Craig and their perspective of the events that followed after this. But I do want to fast forward a bit to Mary and Joseph when they take Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, as was their custom. Something that is said to Mary, there's something there that is said to Mary that is always disturbed and haunted me. In Luke chapter 2, verses 29, he tells us that there was a remnant, two old saints who were deeply devoted and faithful to God, Simeon and Anna, who were at the temple the day Jesus is presented. Both were watching, waiting for the Messiah. God had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Mary and Joseph enter the temple, and it says that Simeon took the baby, took the baby Jesus in his arms, and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. I can die now. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And Simeon doesn't stop there. He continues and he says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And he says this, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What does a young mama do with that? I'm sure she took back her baby from Simeon's arms and held her baby tight. You see, Mary has nursed this baby boy at her breast, nurtured and rocked him to sleep, changed his diapers. She knows this baby boy intimately. But I have to wonder that through the years as she ponders and treasures these things in her heart, did Mary know all that lay in store for her baby boy? You know, as a kid, in the room that I slept in at my grandparents' house, we had a picture of the baby Jesus um, hang, the baby Jesus sleeping, hanging on the wall. It looks something like this. Baby Jesus sleeping. You know, I looked at that every day, and it wasn't until I got older that I really looked at the picture and noticed that Jesus was sleeping on a wooden cross. And in the picture, it's missing here, but the one that we had when I was growing up, there was also a crown of thorns and nails, spikes, on the floor next to the sleeping Jesus. And I remember as a kid trying to wrap my head around this seemingly peaceful picture would require the brutal death of Jesus to bring about salvation. That this reality was always lurking, that this was always his destiny. 
And I wonder if deep down Mary knew. Because there was also a statue, a replica at my grandmother's house. And listen, it was everywhere because my aunt is a nun and she's like a big wig in the Roman Catholic Church. She's a mother general. So she used to bring all these artifacts home from Rome that were blessed by the Pope. So it was like a big deal. <laughs> I know that kind of loses the meaning here, but it was like, oh, wow, it's been blessed from the Pope. Um, so it was cool. But I grew up with this, a replica of this in our house. When it was, yeah, it's the Pieta. It's Mary holding her crucified son. You see, Mary was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. Talk about the piercing of her soul. I cannot imagine what that would have been like for Mary to witness the humiliation and torture and the death of her boy. We're going to pause now, and Georgia Ellison is going to come up, and she's going to lead us in communion as we reflect and ponder and treasure what Jesus has done for us, yeah? We hear the verses in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 to 28 that say, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. He then took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I think we've become desensitized to what this really means. I know for me, sometimes I hop up to take communion. I then just pray a quick prayer of Jesus, thank you um, that you died for my sins and for all that you do for me. I take communion and then I move on. But that's not how God designed it to be. Someone was recently sharing with me about how often we don't want to sit there thinking about what Jesus did because it's too much for us to go there and it makes us feel uncomfortable. But I am learning that when we feel most uncomfortable, that is usually when you need to go there. To me, it is the most selfless thing Jesus could ever do. He not only underwent the most painful death, but he was physically beaten as well. I'm sure some of you know how painful it is when you cut your own skin. Imagine being cut with cuts upon cuts upon cuts. Jesus was whipped so many times and humiliated. He was the only man to live a sinless life, taking the punishment I so deserve because of the love that God so freely pours out on us and his desire to have a relationship with us. Without what Jesus did, we ourselves should die the death that he did and be separated from God for all eternity. But that's not what God wanted or did. I've recently been thinking a lot about the heaviness of what Jesus went through on the cross. I know for me, when I have done something that I know I shouldn't have and sinned, the weight, guilt and heaviness that I feel is often too huge for me to carry. On the cross, Jesus carried the guilt, weight and shame of not just one of my sins, but every single one that I have ever made, as well as everyone I am going to make. 
as well as all of those for every person that has ever lived in the past, those that are currently living, and those who are going to live in the future. This is a weight that I can't even begin to imagine. But the good news is, is that there is hope. One of my favourite verses is found in Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 5, and this is part of what Bernie actually read out earlier. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and inflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his stripes we are healed. God never wanted us to carry the weight of our sins because Jesus has already carried the weight and been punished for us. He has paid the price. When we come to the foot of the cross and ask Jesus to forgive us with a sincere heart, he does. And that is where he wants to leave it. We are the ones that keep on bringing it up again and again. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. To Jesus they are gone completely. We now have this amazing opportunity to take communion together. The Latin word um, communion comes from means fellowship, mutual participation and sharing. God never designed for us to do life alone and communion is especially a time to come together. I invite you to join me as we take these elements together that are just up here in front of me. God has really put it on my heart that for some of you, he wants you to let go of things from the past and move forward made new in him. God is ready to wipe the slate clean for us. There is a heaviness here tonight and God wants to lift that off us so that we can live in freedom that Christ has given us. It's okay to stumble in your journey, but your community of brothers and sisters here want to walk this journey with you and pray with you through all of the ups and downs. We are blessed to have this opportunity to come to the cross, so please make the most of it. Are you ready to leave some of your past mistakes here and leave this place a new creation in Christ? Let's take communion now together. Where angels 
Catholic upbringing. I was taught that Mary died from a broken heart, <laughs> that the piercing of her soul was something that she never recovered from. But listen, church, Mary's story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with her holding her dead crucified son. In Acts 1, if you could do the next slide, I don't have my clicker. In Acts chapter 1, it says this. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill country called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Mary saw the resurrected Christ. She was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came like a rushing wind and descended like tongues of fire on all who were present. And for Mary, I wonder if all the things that she had treasured in her heart, all the things that the angel Gabriel Elizabeth and Simeon had said to her that she came to understand in a fresh way, in a new way. And I wonder if she came to understand that Christmas and Calvary go hand in hand, that the birth and the cross are inseparable. What we celebrate on December 25th is the gift of the birth of our Savior who came to save us from our sins and through his death and resurrection to redeem all that is broken and reconcile us back to our Heavenly Father. If Mary didn't fully know or understand that then, 
she definitely knows and rejoices about it now. And as we walk out of here tonight and go through our week, and as we head towards this Advent season, I'm gonna ask the band to come out and lead us in our last song. We say that again as we walk out here, out of here tonight and go through our week, and as we head towards the Advent season, like Bernie said, it's coming really soon. It's around the corner. May we, <laughs> loved ones, loved by God, favored ones, like Mary, ponder, treasure, magnify, and marvel in awe at the name of Jesus, because what a beautiful name it is. Amen? Amen. Stand as we worship King Jesus. Amen.